United States gets elected to the UN Human Rights Council while the United States and Israel start talking about Plan B for Iran. And this week, we welcome a special guest to the podcast, someone who became a household name to the American Jewish community in 2000 when her husband ran for vice president. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 25 of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Do we get some kind of a present for our 25th anniversary? Isn't there like, is it a gold anniversary, a silver anniversary, paper? Do you know what 25 is? I haven't gotten there yet. In my, my uh, For us, it is the Hadassah Lieberman anniversary, and we look forward to talking with her in just a few minutes. But Jared, uh, a couple of big news items uh, from the past week we should definitely discuss for our listeners. First of all, uh, last Thursday, the elections at the UN for who will be on the UN Human Rights Council starting in 2022. The United States uh, reversed the Trump administration's policy. Uh, of course, President Trump had withdrawn the United States from the UN Human Rights Council. If you go back to its creation in the mid-2000s, the Bush administration did not participate in it. Barack Obama brought the United States into it. Donald Trump brought the United States out in 2018. And now Joe Biden and Secretary of State Tony Blinken bringing the United States back in. Notably, however, obviously a lot of the criticism of the Human Rights Council uh, has long centered on its anti-Israel bias, and that is at the center of the pledges from this administration to try to reform the council from within. Jared? Yeah, I mean, we have a commitment both from the president, from the secretary of state, and the United States ambassador of the United Nations to make combating worldwide anti-Semitism a real priority in this council. And, you know, I was once told by a senior White House official, who I'm not going to name right now, that they're in the pay-for-performance business. They get paid to perform. So I think we'll know pretty soon whether they're going to actually perform and get, and get the job done when it comes to the UN Human Rights Council. So I am personally a big skeptic of the Human Rights Council. I've actually come to the conclusion that I don't think it should exist anymore. It does not make sense. Uh, it's got a secret ballot process to elect human rights abusers to sit in judgment of democracies. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense to its core. I think the Bush administration made the right decision never to join it in the first place. However, if they are going to go back in, which they are now doing so, and they want to be judged on whether or not they can achieve reform from within, they already have a test in front of them. The uh, council has actually voted to create a new commission of inquiry uh, this year uh, following the conflict of Gaza between Hamas and Israel to investigate uh, Israel, not just for war crimes. We remember the Goldstone Commission years ago, but also to try to label Israel an apartheid state. It's really in the mandate if, if, if you read it closely. Uh, and so this commission is completely anti-Israel. It's anti-Semitic in nature. It should be abolished. And here's here's my challenge uh, to, to the Biden administration. You say you're going to go back in, you're going to reform it, you're going to stop the anti-Israel bias. This is probably the most pernicious anti-Israel institutional uh, challenge we face in the international system today. Get rid of this commission of inquiry before it's too late. Uh, certainly not going to be, everybody's going to know where you stand on this one, Rich. Speaking of nowhere, knowing where you stand on issues, uh, why don't we talk Iran for a minute? Uh, absolutely. Uh, last week, we also had a very important visit uh, and bilateral meeting between Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid and the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. Uh, also, Lapid in town uh, meeting with other U.S. officials as well. Obviously, Iran being a major focus uh, of those meetings. Uh, and we had a uh, joint press conference uh, where Lapid put on the table the possibility of an Israeli military strike on Iran. Uh, but also, we heard from Secretary Blinken that patience is running short. Uh, that they are considering a plan B uh, in the White House and the Department of State. 
uh, and that now every option is on the table to deal with Iran, not just other options, which is what the president had used uh, during his bilateral meeting with Prime Minister Bennett. So that is a change. Uh, it is it is a positive signal, I would say, if you favor uh, turning from what I call maximum deference uh, back towards maximum pressure uh, on the Iranian regime. Uh, but it's all still talk right now, and I'm still sort of waiting to see the action. Jared, your views. I mean, I think this is where what I predicted all along, that the Biden administration was going to try the carrot uh, because every administration coming in the door wants to try the carrot, wants to try diplomacy. And then I think you're going to see a steady progression, a steady tightening of the vice on Iran and make sure that they that regime understands that the Biden administration is willing to do whatever it needs to do, either in conjunction with the Israeli government, in conjunction with other Gulf states to make sure that Iran does not achieve this capability which would be so disastrous for the balance of power and certainly an existential threat for Israel, the historic homeland of the Jewish people. Well, here's the first test I would give them to see if there's actually a change uh, going on in the administration, because obviously there's still a special envoy named Rob Malley. I know his views very well. They're very well documented. If he's still leading negotiations with the Iranians, I'm very skeptical that this isn't just posturing uh, for the negotiation to still try to get back to the JCPOA or some sort of a less for less type arrangement, which is to say uh, limited sanctions relief for limited nuclear steps, which would be even worse than the JCPOA, frankly. But there will be a meeting of the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency's uh, Board of Governors, uh, in November. It will be the last opportunity of 2021 to hold Iran accountable for a range of illicit nuclear activity, including their non-cooperation with an investigation into undeclared nuclear material. That will be the moment to see. So far, uh, in March, uh, in June, in September, the Biden administration held back uh, U.S. allies from censuring Iran at the board. This will be the moment to see if they're getting serious about holding Iran accountable. Yeah, and I think time's going to tell, and, and we will certainly be watching that meeting. Jared, we have an incredible guest, so let's go right to it and bring on our special guest of the week. Hadassah Lieberman was born in Prague in what was then Czechoslovakia. Her parents, both Holocaust survivors, left Eastern Europe with their young daughter in 1949 and eventually settled in Gardner, Massachusetts. Mrs. Lieberman graduated from Boston University with a degree in government and dramatics. She received a master's in international relations and American government from Northeastern. With careers in business and nonprofit advocacy, Mrs. Lieberman would become a national celebrity in 2000 when her husband, former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman, was tapped to be Al Gore's running mate. Earlier this year, she released a new book, Hadassah, an American Story. And to help us understand that story, we're honored to welcome her to the podcast. Hadassah Lieberman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I think we wanted to start off this morning. Obviously, we have uh, some uh, sad news uh, this week. Uh, with the passing of former Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, an incredible uh, individual and figure in American history, Colin Powell. You and your husband, uh, new Secretary Powell, General Powell, uh, any reflections that you have uh, this week? Well, you know, to hear the end of a person, of his beauty, of his stature, of his experience, and to know how close my husband felt to him. And, and there's a story he has in one of his books that we were coming to the Capitol on the day that President Bush was being sworn in. And he remembers we sat down and Colin Powell turned around or as we walked by, said, 
wait, what are you doing here on the Sabbath? He said, oh, come on, Colin. As an old, you know, and so Colin said, as an old Shabbos Goy, he was just very sweet. Joe really appreciated him. And, you know, I was saying this morning to Joe, we were talking about it, that it's such a beautiful thing in this crazy time when you can look at someone, you don't see their party affiliation immediately. You see their greatness, their openness, their stature, standing for what American democracy is all about and how he did it so graciously. So I appreciate, I'm sorry about his loss. And I appreciate that through his memory, we remind how we're supposed to act. You know, Adasa, that's amazing that you mentioned it that way. One of the inspirations behind this podcast for Rich and I, who have very different political views, is just that, to have a civilized conversation as Americans in what can be pretty uncivilized times about some of the contentious issues of the day. So thanks for highlighting that. I know it's what gets us on this podcast every time we set to record it. Um, and we will do our best to carry on that legacy. Mrs. Lieberman, I wanted to start with a couple passages uh, from your book, which really stood out to me as defining statements about who you are. You wrote this about your children, quote, their existence represents my ultimate defiance of Hitler's goal, the extermination of the Jewish people. And later on, I'm recounting the first time you were in the Senate chamber when your husband was first elected. He asked you what you were thinking at that moment. You said, I'm thinking of my fist in the air towards Hitler. I am thinking here I am. I made it. My family made it. Who you are, how you live your life, how you want your life to mean, it's connected to being the child of survivors, clearly. What was it like growing up in the shadow of such horror, but in this land of such opportunity? Well, thank you for asking that question. That is a meaningful one to me following the writing of this book. I think that when I sat in the chamber, and you don't do in the Senate, you don't sit in the chamber, but just the orientation, you were allowed to. And I remember Joe was looking around at these photos of all these, you know, Americans who had been leaders in our country for so long a time. And I know he felt wonderful inside himself. And I said, Joey, what are you feeling? And he said, I'm just feeling I'm, and he started to name some of the people's photographs above us at that point in time and how proud he was to be part of this. And then he looked at me and said, what are you thinking? And I said, what you quoted from my book. Because for me to be a survivor of such an atrocious Shoah Holocaust and to have been raised with that in the background, obviously, and to have parents who are Holocaust survivors and to now be, at that moment, the vice president-to-be, hopefully, his wife, to be his wife, to be a survivor. And that's really why I did the book, because I was in a position that no one else had been in before, of a man who was Shomer Shabbat, observant of the Sabbath, and kosher, and really identified with Judaism. 
as we were, as our family always was. And to be in the midst of a national campaign, standing straight and tall and proud and influencing people, no matter where they were from, the right or the left. And they're telling us that as we went forward. They were proud Americans and wanted to shake our hands. Very special. Hadassah, you talk in the book a lot about your mother, uh, and you had a, a your own sort of Yiddish slang name for her um, that I found sort of interesting. And also you talk a lot about hearing her scream in the night. When did you finally understand the full picture of what your parents have been through uh, in the Shoah? Well, when I heard the cries at night, I was younger, you know, obviously. And... I don't know. I can't point to a date. It took me a while to understand that she had these nightmares. So I was a little different from your average four-year-old, six-year-old, you know, living through that and hearing my mother screaming from a gut. It was awful. And it was funny because I remember when I, you know, I got punished or whatever, you know, you're a little kid and you're crying in your bedroom. And, and I remember my daddy would come up and hug me tightly. And my mommy really didn't come into the room then. I don't know why. I don't know what. There were so many things I didn't know and I still don't know. But it's my mommy. And... She, she was who she was, a, a lively personality, plus able to really command, you know, looks on the street and pass it, people passing by. And it wasn't so easy for her to be happy in the house all the time. But I didn't know why or what. Or I know the influence she had on me, but I also know what I had to I didn't have a mommy who was walking around. Oh, you're so kind. Oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're. She assumed I was wonderful. I had no choice. I had to be wonderful. And we were survivors' kids, my brother and I. Your father, a rabbi, an intellectual, an ardent Zionist, and as you describe, a genuine hero. Uh, he was born and he died on Simchat Torah. I thought that was an incredible thing as we think about the Torah readings of that day, the death and burial of Moses, followed immediately by the birth of all mankind. Uh, tell us about your father and his seemingly never-ending positive outlook and how that influenced you. Well, my daddy was very, you know, strict, old-fashioned dad whose expectations had to be met or you were not going to have a great day that day, the next day. And my father always talked about how we needed to be strong, which is one of my favorite expressions in the Hebrew and combination with Yiddish. And he would always praise us, but not all the time. He would praise us and we knew there were expectations from him about us. And 
the funny part was, yes, my parents were immigrants. Yes, they had to learn a new language. Yes, they had to learn new customs, which they picked up or didn't at all. Or foods, which my mother, uh, Americanish of food, not for her. She didn't pick up. So there was a, with, despite all of these pressures and new vehicles and new phrases and new foods, they sort of held themselves above. They didn't get concerned that they weren't meeting some of what they saw outside. They didn't want to. They always said, we don't do that here. We don't act that way here. So my dad was an important, I would say he was positive, but he was proud. He was firm. He knew what he wanted. And I wouldn't say it was overly, it wasn't positive to everything going on around us. I, I uh, write about my trying to get the I Speak for Democracy contest at Gardner High School, which I just decided to do. And I wrote my speech. Of course, my daddy said, I would like to edit it. And of course he edited it. So he edited it. And then I went into, I was a winner. And I went into the car for that Memorial Day when I was driving through the streets of Gardner with a congressman from Massachusetts and waving. And there were my parents. And there I was in a totally American moment. And they had tears in their eyes. So I know they appreciated always the amazing role that America played in our lives, kept us alive and free, and let us love each other and our community at large. Hadassah, you talk about how your father passed just before your visit to Auschwitz as part of the official delegation to the 50th anniversary of liberation. Your mother had asked you to bring back soil. And I want to read what you wrote just because for both Rich and I, it's one of the most emotional parts of the book. And then maybe kind of get your reaction on it. Um, I'm quoting now, these people, the unsuspecting, the victims, the Kadoshim, were not left behind in peace. I will not take their soil. I don't want any part of that soil. Yet a rock endures from the beginning. It waits silently, protectively, coldly. The rock was there before, and the rock is there after, and the rock bears witness. This egg-shaped rock will go on my father's grave. It is small, Daddy, but it is tough, like you. It survives. Tell us, tell us about that day and that trip and what it meant to you. That was the most incredible trip. And I've repeated much of it in the book. And some of it was in the congressional record. And that was an amazing moment for me to have it in the congressional record. That invitation from the White House, which was the President Clinton's White House at that point in time, inviting me on the Auschwitz commemorative trip with Elie Wiesel and several others was amazing because I encountered, I remember my mother 
had spoken about being in Auschwitz and how the gendarmes were whipping prisoners and her sister, I remember she talked about being whipped and, you know, the toilet facilities, the bunks, everything that was, you know, horrendous and all very real, but to walk through Auschwitz and see it before my very eyes was overwhelming to me because it was very real. I knew it was real, but to see it and to see all these young visitors from various countries in the region and externally walking around to learn more about Auschwitz, where students were brought with guides telling, telling them about what they were seeing around them. And uh, so Rich and I are both uh, parents of young children. Uh, mine are a little bit older. Uh, my, my eldest is getting ready to go into middle school. And I, I wanted to ask, should, should visits to Auschwitz or other camps be something that we as a society prioritize for children? Is it something that we need to keep doing? Uh, I would love to hear your take on it. Yes, I believe it should be a priority because unfortunately, that is why some of us are here today. And that is why we have relatives who have been who were exterminated. And now more than ever, as the memories fade with more and more deaths of survivors, it is important to take these children. And in so doing, it can't just be the Auschwitzes. It has to be what we are as Jews, what our history is what our literature is and this period of time that is unfortunately memorialized by these places where they were killed over and over again. Now, Father Du Bois, who is a wonderful man who has really spent time investigating where so many Jews were shot during the war in the Ukrainian area is saying, let's not forget some of these places that were not numbered before. And now, you know, there could have been another million killed just by bullets along the way, buried under the soil. That's part of our history and we cannot forget it. And yet I understand that critical charge is do not just remember the Holocaust. Do not just remember the death. But unfortunately, Jews survived the death. In every century, there was something else. And to ignore what just happened is sinful and impossible. I have a friend who is an artist, probably you know, Mindy Wiesel. She just came out with a new book on her art. And a few years ago, she went to Germany. She was invited there with her art and German ambassador and others coming to see her. And some of the children who had become adults had been the children of Holocaust 
not of Nazis surviving the Holocaust. And Mindy was telling me the stories and she wrote them in her book, how some children of the Nazis came with bouquets of flowers in their hands to give Mindy. And when she told me that, it brought tears to my eyes. Not that this absolved what had been done, but we're taught as Jews that we have to pray and help to educate and make things better. Tikkun olam is one of the most important phrases we take out of the Bible. Tikkun olam, together repairing the world. You know, Dasa, when I, I listen to you talk and I read the book, I, I relate um, as a grandchild of, of a survivor, um, but even just growing up with parents of that generation raising children, I think for us, for Jared, we were really surrounded by the same sort of message that, that you're delivering today. That was how we were raised. Uh, I was raised in Skokie, Illinois, right? One of the Holocaust survivor capitals of the country. I didn't realize growing up that everyone around me in my synagogue of a certain age were all survivors until I was older. Um, my two brothers are twins. They were born on April 20th, Hitler's birthday. And my parents to this day take pride that Jewish twins who would have been, you know, done horrible things to you by Mangala were born on Hitler's birthday, but that's our generation. Right. And, and I just, I'm concerned. I see the polling. You've seen the survey data on Holocaust education in America. And even though all these States have mandates to teach it, we have March of the living is this new generation, this next generation with this distance from the Holocaust, from the Shoah, are, are you worried that we're, we're, we're losing some of that sort of feeling, that fervor, and, and what can be done about it? Of course, when time goes by, experiences of the older generations become more and more distant, unfortunately. And that's a reality for anything, anywhere. And yet... We must not forget, and we must try to incorporate that into our lives in terms of education and in terms of possibly parents, grandparents who are survived, teaching their children, and maybe even all of us have something, candlesticks or photographs or, you know, pictures of the past that need to be taken and salvaged and given to the younger children as a gift of a remembrance of an important gift, like we light the candle in the middle of our table when we have you know, a yard site or certain holidays to remember and to remind our children, particularly if it's from our own families, that this, since grandma is not alive, since this parent is not alive, you need to light the candle they lit for the dead that they knew or heard about. We need to have ways to have our children Remember, that's why I think sometimes books on the Shoah, 
that are done for youth carefully need to be included on our bookshelves in ways that it can be a memorializing of something as we go through a positive time in our Judaism. Even though there are sparks that we see today of less positive people, less positive voices. And of course we get paranoid because if we read the background of Nazism, it didn't start as badly. It, it didn't start the same way it ended up. And so of course we're paranoid. We don't wanna be, but it seems too real. So we have to keep working for the positive and keep teaching people and make some things stay alive. And this is an education that has to be global and carefully done as American citizens, as Israeli citizens. And I don't know the answer. I know a lot of people are working to find what they need to do. And Tikkun Olam is what we are obligated to do. Hadassah, your, your name, as you talk about it in the book, obviously the title of the book uh, was going to be Esther, uh, but a Czech clerk uh, talked your dad out of it uh, in sort of a, a post-war pushback on, on a name that sounded too German. When he came to America, he was thinking about changing it back to Esther, but uh, a Massachusetts nun of all people talked him into keeping Hadassah. Uh, the title of your book, An American Story, really encapsulated in that. Uh, little tale. How do you compare the America we're in here in 2021 to the America that your family came to in 1949? Well, they came as immigrants. You know, they came with no language. My mother knew a few words of English here and there. And my father was a rabbi and he used to have to practice his, his speaking and vocabulary on the tape recorder at night. I used to hear the tape recorder because he had to speak to people who were totally in Gardner, Massachusetts, near the New Hampshire border, who were not immigrants, you know, maybe great grandparents, but they didn't know anything about the Shoah. So here he had come into a different place in America. And he ended up being the president of the Ministerial Association in the small town of Gardner, Massachusetts. When he entered into that town before he was the head of the clergy organization, he remembered the minister, the Protestant minister being on radio and he would hear things he would say. And he said, it sounded like it was anti-Semitic. And he, of course, as the rabbi, wasn't going to let it go. And he went to see the minister and talked to him. And they ended up being rather close colleagues because he talked to him and he understood and he listened to my father, Baruch Hashem. And he, he stopped speaking that way. So those were the, that's how I was raised in that kind of a community. And there was no negatives that were expressed, even though I have friends from Gardner who say to me, oh, you were the rabbi's daughter. You didn't hear it. You didn't see it. But 
I experienced anti-Semitism, you know, on and on like that, but I didn't. And we all, it was a different time. It was an earlier time. It was, it was not, there were not a lot of immigrants coming into the country and you had to adjust. And our only language is Yiddish. There was no one who knew any Yiddish. Maybe there were some Jews in the community. But when my father was practicing for a conservative rabbi's job, because they were the only ones that were taking rabbis, it wasn't the Orthodox movement. And when he was practicing for it, and he went kneeling down during the Rosh Hashanah service he was in the midst of, he stood up and turned around and they were gaping at him, staring at him. They had never seen that. So what was it? I mean, to me, it was, I, you're, you know, wear a skirt to kindergarten. Okay, pull your hair back. Okay, do this, do that. When I came home the first day and said, mommy, because she said to me, how are you? How's it going in Yiddish? And I said, no more Yiddish, mommy, only English, because everyone spoke English. And she said, okay. And they had to speak English. And I remember the stories that I was talking about immigration and sitting in my husband's car. He was being driven to New York and I needed to go to New York that day for a meeting. And the driver who was Pakistani in the front seat turned around at one point. I was talking to my father about immigration, as I said. And he said, Hadassah, I want my children to see that book. I want them to read about what you're talking about. Because I was saying it's so important for immigrants, children to understand they are inviting children into their house that don't know the languages of your parents, don't know anything about anything. And it's important to be careful as children, to be respectful and helpful. I remember I used to, when my friends came over, my mommy was always there, always talking to them. And I still remember the, I don't remember what party it was. It was a costume party in our garage. And my mommy was handing out kosher Japanese, whatever food that she had invented. And to the people in the garage celebrating the party. And she was dressed as a geisha along with me. And I remembered those moments. So we were immigrants who were trying hard to make it and to yet continue to be who we are. We were Shomer Shabbat. We were kosher. That wasn't going to change. So it was a combination and the reality of knowing you're an immigrant, you're a minority, not a majority. And some people move to places where they're more of a majority because that's the easiest way. So Hadassah, speaking of, that's a perfect segue to my next question. Uh, your husband was in many ways, the Sandy Koufax of the United States Senate. Uh, and 
I was wondering if you have any favorite stories of of celebrating Shabbat in D.C. and maybe any stories of what it's like to be uh, Shomer Shabbat in the middle of a, of a presidential and a vice presidential campaign uh, could not have been easy. And I'm sure it made for some interesting juxtapositions along the way. Well, what you find, what I found is that, look, our observance of Shabbat and observant of Kashrut and all those things are part of your daily life. And then there you are in the midst of history and events and challenges and campaigns that, well, the Jewish life has to be blended in and the political life has to be blended into the Jewish life. I never forget that one Pesach, this was before all the national elections, but a um, close colleague of my husband, Vice President Gore, and his wife, Tipper, were invited to our table to join us for one of the satyrs. And I remember at a certain point when you're supposed to open up the door for Eliyahu, I think, Joe had to leave or say, open the door, but the secret service waiting for him or whatever was outside. They thought, ay, 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 Eliyahu's coming the wrong way or what's going on. But anyway, so there are all kinds of things. And finally, during a campaign, it was um, when he was running for the VP. Or no, this was a Senate. It was a Senate Friday where he had to be there for votes that were Friday night and Shabbat morning. And of course, I took a white tablecloth to put on his Senate desk and brought the Shabbat food and put it out. And then we told the senators, the Jewish senators who were there, we're going to have Shabbat meal. And then one of the senators that wasn't Jewish said, I would like to join. So all of a sudden, we had a lot of people coming in for our buffet Shabbat meal which was very exciting. So sharing, and I always say that to observant people, it is important to share the beauty of the moment with people who may not have had it or, you know, something they are curious about. We have to give what we feel, our love, our share to others. So that's just a few of the many experiences. Uh, Jared, I have one to share because I would lead high holiday services for a few years at Kesher Israel when I was uh, in the the Senate working for Senator Kirk. And one Yom Kippur, uh, who did they give the honor of holding the Torah to, to stand next to me for my entire Kol Nidre, uh, but Senator Joseph Lieberman, which may have been one of the more intimidating experiences of my life. Uh, so it's quite funny. But uh, but anyways, Jared, I know you had a question as well. Oh, that's so beautiful. Tell him. Hadassah, I wanted to ask you about uh, hate and anti-Semitism uh, and the Internet. Um, it's sort of it's exploded over the last years. And, you know, you've you campaigned all across America 20 years ago and never really encountered anti-Semitism once but today it feels like it's everywhere. And uh, you, you know, you lay a lot of the blame at the internet 
we probably have time for a whole chapter, if not a full book on this issue. Uh, but what do you think the culpability of the internet companies is and what should they be doing to regulate anti-Semitism here or, or stamp out anti-Semitism, not regulate it? Well, whether it ever can be stamped out, I don't know. However, what you have, you know, people joke about the internet. People are in their basement writing these things. The point is minority, hateful minorities that are spread all over the place. All of a sudden, they have an address, a unifying address to go to where they don't feel alone in their thoughts. They feel empowered. And it can be people, there's always been hate toward different people. But all of a sudden, there is a strength, a force, an organization they can join. And we've seen that come out in protests. We've seen it come out frequently in this articulation on the media. And I think it's critical that we have to make certain decisions that represent our values in a society. Hadassah, one, one last uh, question, and we get to our lighthearted uh, lightning round, uh, which we do for all our guests. Uh, towards the end of your book, you, you sort of drop a bombshell uh, where you revealed that uh, you had and had recovered from early stage breast cancer. Uh, you had already been doing a lot of work with Susan G. Komen, and I think that work continues today. Uh, but it's something you as a private person wanted to reveal, wanted to talk about um, to, to women out there today. I mean, what, what, what do you want to say? Well, you know, I didn't want to talk about it, but as I went on and I was in the middle of this book, the few people who knew about it, I didn't talk about it with anyone. And, you know, really my husband was the person who took me for my chemotherapy and I did it at 7 a.m. So he could even come during the Senate's crazy hours. And I had to because I felt there are many women out there who need me to speak. I was most fortunate and it's important to have a friend or a spouse or a child be next to you at that time to support you because it's something new. And I was working for Coleman when all of a sudden I discovered a lump and I was lucky I was in stage one and met many people in different stages. And what I can say about it is, thank God, there's more and more care being attached to treating people. And it includes male patients. And this is a very hard thing. And one of the hardest crazy, this is such a shallow reaction, but being told that chemotherapy would make me lose my hair, I was like shocked. And then it eventually, a few months down the road, I lost my hair. And Hani, my baby child, who's now in her 30s, she um, said, Mommy, you have to get a shadow that's good. And so she went with me to the store in Baltimore to make sure, and just daddy has to buy this for you. So I would have one that was up to date and cute. And I was thinking, 
um, Hani, who's really our um, observant kid to the right and made Aliyah. And so there, I, you know, those crazy, stupid things and making sure you just take care of yourself in every possible way and stay strong, stay strong. And that's very hard. And don't let yourself be monopolized by that treatment or by that illness. You've got to fight it to stay well. You can't allow anything to demolish you from the inside, any fear. So I appreciate the help I had. And I appreciate, thank God, that I'm done with that chapter, hopefully. Also, thank you. Thank you for those inspiring words. Uh, at the you. end of every interview, we do something called the lightning round, where we ask a series of lighthearted questions okay. to try and get a little bit of sense of your Yiddishkeit. Um, so the first one is, what's the best recipe you inherited from your parents or family? Uh, favorite Jewish recipe? Oh, boy. You know, it's funny because my mommy did not, she didn't like say, oh, come join me in the, in the kitchen. I helped with everything, but I didn't, I didn't learn to cook so much. But one of my favorite recipes that I remember was Leica honey cake. And that was a very special one, the sweetness and around the new year in particular. Is, is there a senator you met, other than your husband, of course, uh, over the many years you were around the Senate that you respected the most and why? Well, I would look, there were many different senators. And I remember and through my husband's closeness with John McCain that he was very fun. He was a, a very wonderful, strong, strong man. And I appreciated that. And I also have to share that when we went to his ranch in Arizona and he even bought a new broiler and bought all his food, kosher food. So we didn't have anything in the other broiler. And I remember he did that and that was so caring and wonderful and nice. He really respected Joe and Joe respected him. And again, it's that difference in parties, the difference in coming together how can we ever learn about things unless we listen to people expressing their views on different items of thought, of commitment, and then maybe adjusting what we like a lot, maybe what they hate a lot, and why is that? What can be deleted from that? So John was a really great guy. So love him. Hadassah, do you have a favorite Hebrew or Yiddish word or phrase? Other, other than Ein Breira, other than Ein Breira. Oh, okay. Okay. I was going to say that one again, but I won't. Okay. Um, I would say, ooh, um, 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 Ein Breira sticks in my mind. And I'm thinking, okay. Oh, it just, um, Gewalt, um, Genuch, Genuch, Genuch. And now my my grandson in Israel says, die, die. But that's not, that's Hebrew. <laughs> but um, a Reisgeworfen gelt, thrown out money. I used to hear that all the time from my parents. So that I would say a Reisgeworfen gelt. That's not a bad one. And Zeigesund. 
So yeah. I guess yeah. it's to all of us. I guess it's yeah. to all of us. Hadassah Lieberman, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciated it. This was a great conversation. And uh, everybody out there should get the book. Uh, it's a lot. It's it, You'll feel it in your kishkas. Uh, and, and in my mind, that's, there's no better compliment. Thank you. And in my mind, I want to really, really thank you both. You're very sweet and you're kind and you're real. And I appreciate being interviewed by you. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Wow, Rich, you know, uh, it's very rare that we get to talk to somebody like that who is just a, a participant in the history of, of our people and a participant in the history of this nation for the last 50 years. And uh, wow, it was just a, a true pleasure to have Hadassah Lieberman on with us today. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey, hey, hey.